Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Stephen Hennikoff from the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center in Seattle on this show. Please let me quickly introduce you to our audience. Uh, you, you received your PhD from Harvard University in Biochemistry and Molecular Biology in 1977. You then moved on to do your postdoc at the University of Washington, and then you joined the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center in 1981, and you are basically still there today. Um, so that's this short version, but maybe we can get into your career part in a bit. Um, but first, I want to start with the questions I like to ask every guest to start off, off our little podcast. So how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? Well, uh, I've always uh, enjoyed solving puzzles and I was drawn to science because you can make a career out of solving puzzles. But I didn't think much about biology until college at University of Chicago, where I decided on chemistry as a major, because I thought it'd be easier in math or physics. But biology seemed too complicated to get, to get at the basic principles. It turned out I really liked doing experiments in the lab. And wouldn't it be wonderful if I could do that for a living? But uh, research in chemistry didn't seem very interesting at the time. But it wasn't until I took basic biology that I learned about progress in molecular biology. And this was mid late 1960s. And Jim Watson's molecular biology gene textbook uh, first came out there. And I realized, wow, this is the beginning of understanding the chemistry of life. And it probably wasn't as complicated as messy as I thought. The possibilities for understanding how, how cells work uh, were, were endless. And so I was hooked. So your path into science was not so linear as maybe it is nowadays. Um, you also spent some time abroad uh, in Germany. Um, how did that come? <laughs> oh, you really did, <laughs> Of course. I mean, I'm 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 living well, in Germany. Well, how did that come about? Well, it was not by choice. I got drafted into the army during the Vietnam War, and uh, and I <clears throat> I was trained. Actually, it was. It turned out to be okay because instead of going to Vietnam like I was supposed to go, they sent me to Germany instead, and I spent uh, I spent the rest of my time in uh, in in Germany driving trucks and ambulances and doing doing those kinds of things and really really enjoying and learning German too. So it was fun, and my wife came over, so uh, we we actually had a good time. I guess the only thing that's relevant to <laughs> to science was that. Uh, so I, I had, <clears throat> I, I got drafted after, after completing, uh, my undergraduate education before going, going to graduate school. And in order to get out of the army in time for, uh, in time to start the academic year at Harvard, I, I had to get something called an early out because otherwise I'd, I'd miss the opening in September. Uh, so, so I, but I knew how the army worked back then. And, uh, I, I knew that I'd better get everything just right. So, uh, they allow an early art out for going to any, any 
institution, any academic institution that that is accredited. So I wrote to Wally Gilbert, who was the head of the, the who was running the graduate program at the time. And I wrote, Wally, could you send me a letter that says that Harvard University is an accredited institution? <laughs> he said, ah, yes, of course it is. And I got out and here I am. <laughs> so, so it worked. <laughs> so yeah, it was like just on purpose um, and then you could uh, carry on with your scientific career without any obstacles. <laughs> so coming to a science that centers around nucleosome dynamics, transcriptional regulation, centromeric chromatin and centromeric evolution, and of course in the last couple of years uh, the development of epigenomic technologies. While we can't cover all of that, uh, which would probably take three to four hours, um, I still want to cover some of that. Um, okay. So please Uh, so please correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, I was, but it was around the turn of the century when you began to focus on centromeres. And in 2005, you wrote a review titled Centromeric Chromatin, What Makes It Unique? Um, to dive into this topic, I want to pass this question back to you. Um, so what makes the centromeric chromatin unique? Or to put it another way, what did you think in 2005 that makes the centromeric chromatin unique? Actually, this is something I've been thinking about since I was a graduate student. So, so uh, my my postdoc advisor, my graduate advisor, uh, uh, Matt Messelson, uh, <clears throat> well known for the Messelson-Stahl experiment, where he used buoyant density, buoyant density gradient centrifugation in order to to determine that. DNA replicates in a semi-conservative manner. So he developed this, this method and it was used in the, in the 60s and, and, and 70s to characterize DNA. And what you saw was for eukaryotes, but not for bacteria, you had something called satellite bands. These were bands that, that, that floated different from the main band And what, uh, what was very surprising was even closely related species would have different satellites. Well, of course, satellites band off the main band because they are simple sequence DNA tandem, tandem repeat. So they don't have exactly the same base composition as the total. And so you could actually characterize differences in DNA back then just using the, this method. And even closely related species had different satellites. And Matt had the idea, well, maybe this is the basis for speciation because you know and and he even had the idea to go to maybe we should go to to uh, fertility clinics and see if people who are infertile are infertile because they have different satellites so so he had this this idea and the idea was really intriguing and so uh, since we later learned that actually centromeres are all embedded in satellite dna uh that that You know, maybe maybe there's something to uh, Matt's idea, which must be awfully correct, because uh, th this led to the centromere drive hypothesis. When Harmi Malik was a postdoc in the, in the lab, he began looking looking at this more closely. And the reason he, the reason we got excited about it had to do with the with Sempe with the centromeric histone, and that's because we had isolated the centromeric histone from Drosophila and, and it was, even though histone H3 is identical between humans and flies, the SEMP-A and the, what we called SID centromere identifier in Drosophila were very different. 
uh, like the internal tails didn't even align, things like that, where, where of course they're invariant in, in, in H3. So here we had something that was kind of like what Matt was thinking about with the satellite DNA. So it wasn't just the satellite DNA that was rapidly evolving. It was also the centromeric histone, incredibly rapidly evolving. And Harmit had sh showed by looking at two Drosophila species that it's adaptively evolving. That led to what we call the centromere drive hypothesis, where there's centromeres are selfish of female meiosis one. So one goes to the egg pole and the other goes to the, <clears throat> is lost in the, in, in the, uh, uh, in the, in the polar body. So that, <clears throat> and that led to, that showed basically Matt's basic idea was, was right. And so that was pretty exciting. And the other thing it led to was our interest in histone variants uh, in a big way and the evolution of, of histone variants. So um, the same, at the same time, Kami Ahmed, who was a postdoc in the lab, had, had taken the sequence that we cloned from Drosophila, Drosophila uh, centromere ID SID, and he made a GFP construct because he wanted to know <clears throat> about how it incorporated into chromatin, and he used cytology with the GFP construct to look and to see when it incorporated during the cell cycle and turned out and incorporated throughout the cell cycle. Okay, and you could see it went right to centromeres. Now, uh, that, was, that was good because of course, the major histones all incorporate through, uh, they, they all incorporate during replication. At least that's what was thought. And, uh, but then Kami did a, a key control he used histone H4, made the GFP construct, and then, and then asked where it went because it should be the partner. So of course it went in replication, went everywhere, but outside of replication, it did go to centromeres. So that's good because H4 is the partner for, for, the, for a SID or SEMPE, but it went somewhere else, which, was surprising. It went to the active ribosomal genes, which were uh, in Drosophila in this particular cell line were on one chromosome, all the active ribosomal genes. Now, what's it doing there? The H4. That raised the question, what's, well, what's the partner of H4 there? It can't be the centromeric histone. And we realized, oh, it must be H3.3, which nobody really paid attention to H3.3, because after all, it's uh, you know, it's just a replacement histone, kind of boring, but it turned out to be actually quite interesting because it turned out to go to all active genes. That's what we inferred from our cytology. And that was uh, that got us totally into histone variants. And uh, a, a couple of years later, Genevieve Almuzny, and which she talked about in your program, and uh, Pat Nakatani showed that actually they're two separate, they're two separate chaperones for the two variants that that Kami had identified that the conventional H3 and the, and the H3.3 as actually being substrates of two different pathways. So, so, that, so basically thinking about centromeres got us into just about everything that we've been working on. So coming back to the Drosophila centromere, um, you called that the hemisome. Um, how, did you, how did you come about this name and what does it look like? 
Well, uh, actually, the term, I think, was coined by uh, earlier when people were uh, had hypothesized. Actually, Hal Weintraub, I think, had hypothesized uh, half-nucleosome. And uh, we were we were thinking we were we had some evidence in Drosophila that that was the case. I don't think that's been completely resolved yet, but at least in yeast, it was it was something that we could study because yeast have 120 base pair centromeres at all of their all all of their centromeres, and it's quite it's quite interesting. You have a binding site for the CBF1 protein. Uh, on one side, and you have the binding site for the CBF3 complex on the other side. And that left only 80 base pairs to, uh, to wrap the nucleosome, which we and others have mapped right in, in between. And so you really only had 80 base pairs of wrap. So that, that led to the idea that, well, it was either a tetrasome or a half nucleosome or hemisome. And we, we demonstrated that using all the methods that we had available, including showing that we could assemble hemisomes uh, from, from basically purified DNA and purified histones. So, so it was really in yeast that where, we, where we worked that out. Um, but with respect to what the structure is at, at, uh, in Drosophila and humans, uh, we've been looking at it, other people have been looking that, at that, and it's still, I think, unclear what the actual particle is. It's clearly something bigger than, uh, than just the wrap of the histones, because there are all these other proteins that uh, uh, WSX, and there's other, which also can wrap histones. And uh, so there are, other, there are other proteins that are involved there. And we haven't, I don't think the actual structure has been, has been worked out there. But in yeast, I think it's pretty clear. So you studied the centromere in Drosophila in budding yeast and in fission yeast. Um, what can you say about the, the centromere structure there? Is it um, different? Is it the same? Um, what can you say? We really, uh, fission yeast is, is, um, is a little, is, is somewhat different from, from budding yeast. You don't have this uh, canonical sequence there. Um, and so it's, it's really hard to, it's really hard to say. We we looked at some of the other centromere proteins, particularly um, particularly SMT, uh, and uh, I can't, you know. And we really we really couldn't make all that much out all that much out of it. So so I actually when Florian Steiner was uh, postdoc in the lab, he also looked at worm holocentric chromosomes and found that they were polycentric in the sense that there's lots of little uh, lots of little sites where where it's found and there the the evidence was that it's also a, a single wrap particle exactly what what it's made up of you know we can't really say but but it, it all it all kind of fits there for for those for uh, for worm but but I think the jury's still out with respect to what's going on. In, in humans and uh, in, in other animals other than, other than holocentrics. Yeah, I wanted to, to come to human, human now. You then looked at the human centromeres and what you call a called a bottom-up approach. Um, the, re the results of that were published in a paper called A Unique Chromatin Complex Occupies Young Alpha Satellite Arrays of Human Centromeres. Um, so what did you find there about the human centromeres? Well, that was, that was uh, in, in large part to 
not to look at the structure of the complex, but to look at the sequences that were that underlay it, underlay it. And basically, what we uh, what we discovered is that these sequences, uh, that the alpha satellite sequences, which were well known, were actually the most uh, were actually the most uh, the most homogeneous. Okay, that we were that we we're finding there, and looking at different chromosomes, we basically showed that there were different uh, there were <clears throat> there were there were different uh, uh, organizations, and the major organization was not a single unit of alpha satellite, which is 171 base pairs, but a uh, a dimer that is about 340 base pairs. Uh, in different in different chromosomes, and that was that was really dominating, and so that's what we were that's what we we're finding by using chip in this case to SEMPE, we were able to and and the other centromere proteins we were able to to basically characterize the the what what the major centromeres were, and the major form was this, this thimeric satellite. Not some chromosomes have other have other forms, but for most I think at least half of the chromosomes uh, had one form, and then all of our acrocentric chromosomes. We have five acrocentric chromosomes. They had another another form again uh, with this dimer organization. So that's basically what it was about. We weren't really looking so much at the uh, actual complex there. Mm -hmm. You were then also looking at the histone variants that are located at the centromeres like SEMP-A, SEMP-C, and SEMP-T. Um, what can you say about those three variants? Um, what is the major ones and what are the differences? Uh, well, SEMP-C is actually different. It's not a, it's not a histone variant. It's SEMP-A and SEMP-TWSX are, 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 are histone full proteins. Okay. Uh, SEMP-TWSX, other people had shown, does form a single uh, wrap particle. Uh, so that that really that really wasn't wasn't our work, but it's quite interesting that how do you fit this MTWSX particle together with the with the SEMPA together with its its histone partners? I think that's where the that's where things really get quite uncertain. We have a model for it, but it's still a model that hasn't really been tested. We aren't really we aren't really focused so much on on centromeres anymore. A former a postdoc in the lab, uh, Jatendra Thacker. She's uh, she's faculty at Emory. She basically took all of the centromere work work with her to her okay. new job at Emory. So then I will also uh, stop questioning you here. But can you maybe um, yeah give a little summary of what is uh, that defines the centromeres in human? What you found uh, during the years when we circle yeah. back to the. When you when we circle it back to the first questions, right? Um, what was uh, the picture in two thousand five, and what picture do you have now from the centromeres? Yeah, I think I think it's uh, uh, more or less the same as the the model we had. Okay, so we had a model to account for the three hundred forty base pair doublet unit. So it's much bigger than the whole thing. So so we started with a single wrap particle is what we we're thinking about in 2005 and that was pretty clear uh, that became that was clear to us and became clearer in yeast but that wasn't what you see with these 340 or so base pair wraps and uh, 
the the picture the the model we have is that is that you have this TWSX particle together with the SEMPE particle there. And other people are really uh, working on the structure. And so we're not, we're not really getting into that game. So I don't know how it's gonna come out, uh, but it's still, it's still not clear what the structure is. It'll be a big hit if somebody works out uh, the structure. Now it's gotta be careful because the structure in vivo could be very different from what you can assemble in vitro. And uh, most everything is done in vitro now, but with prior-OEM methods, somebody, uh, people I'm, I'm sure are working on it. I know people have been working on it, but I don't know what the answer is. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's shift gears a little bit. In the last decade or so, you have been on the forefront of developing epigenomics methods to study the structure of chromatin. Um, in the interest of time, I want to start in the year 2015. Um, there, I think you your current trend or the current trend in your lab of epigenomics methods started with developing or with CheckSeq, I think uh, I pronounce it correctly. So what was the motivation behind developing CheckSeq and what were the advantages uh, compared to, to other methods at that time? Well, the, back, the background is that we were sort of early into the, the enzyme tethering, uh, the enzyme tethering methods. So what you're describing with CheckSeq is what I would call an enzyme tethering method, which is done inside the cell rather than, than something like CHIP, where you solubilize everything and then add the antibody. In this case, in this case, we're, we're tethering something to the site And we're looking at it in vivo, uh, in, in vivo in the case of, of DAM-ID, which was developed by Boston Steenson when he was a postdoc in the lab. And with DAM-ID, you use DAM-methyltransferase, and that was in vivo. And then, and then the, the, key, the key breakthrough was a couple of years later, Uli Lemley and his colleagues developed what they called chromatin endogenous cleavage and chromatin immunocleavage, or CHEC and CHIC. And those were the methods that we actually built on uh, over a decade later, the, their paper was sitting there. And, and we started out following their protocol for, uh, for check. They did it with a Southern blot readout and Gabe Zentner was postdoc and lab picked up on it and went ahead and, to turn, and, and made it into a really very powerful sequence-based readout, which is uh, still widely used in yeast. Uh, and then, and then uh, after Gabe left, I got to thinking, well, if that works so well, why don't we try the sheet method? And it required a lot. Of, that was also with the Southern blot readout, and it required a lot of fiddling around. The backgrounds were high and things like that. But we were able to overcome the problems by uh, a couple of things that that we did to the method that we called cleavage under target release using chromatin. What we did was instead of just taking the whole thing, we just allowed the allowed the the complex. Oh, I, I should back up. So with the difference between check and chic is that with check, you uh, you make a fusion protein, but with with chic and and our version the cut and run, you make a fusion between protein A and micrococcal nuclease. So check is just the fusion with micrococcal nuclease and, and she can cut and run is a fusion that where the protein A binds to IgG. So, so now you can target any antibody, okay? And so that made it much, 
more useful, much more powerful. So, so, so sorry to interrupt you. The Cut and Run was published then in 2017. Um, yeah. And uh, what did you, yeah, what makes Cut and Run unique uh, in, 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 in this aspect? The, 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 main, the main thing is that it's inherently lower backgrounds, better signal noise inherently than chip, which is what most people use. That's, that's because you're not sampling from the whole genome, but, but it's only where the antibody can find, can find its site in the, in the cellar nucleus, in the intact cellar nucleus. And, those, and so therefore the backgrounds go way down because you're only solubilizing the part that, of the genome that's right next to where the antibody is. And so if you have antibody to a transcription factor, which just covers a very tiny part of the genome, even 10,000 sites cover a very tiny part of the genome, you're only, you're leaving behind the, the vast majority of the genome and only solubilizing what's around it. Backgrounds go way down. And what that means is you don't have to sequence very deeply. And what that means is you don't need that many cells. So it can be done on very low cell numbers. And that was a big breakthrough. I, I think, I mean, we, it, it was, we need orders of magnitude fewer cells and an order of magnitude less sequencing. Makes it cheap, makes it, and also since it's just a matter, there's no sonication or anything like that. It's just a matter of adding, of adding reagents to nuclei that are mobilized on magnetic beads. Uh, it, it, it's very easy to do. So in a cut and run, you use MNAs to, to release the, the uh, yeah, the fragments that the antibody bound to. I mean, that's, I think we, we uh, didn't uh, mention that. Um, and then you just wash away the things that you want to see, right? So this is why you don't have any background if the MNAs doesn't cut anything else. That's right. Um, you then also modified and improved upon the original method and also made it automatable. Um, so what did you change and uh, how did this, this then work? Well, this was uh, Derek Jansen's postdoc in the lab who, who did, the, did the robotics. And the nice thing about auto cut and run, which by the way, we have as a shared uh, use resource, is that, is that you can do all that, you can do everything from the cells all the way, you can do everything on the robot from beginning with the cells all the way to purified libraries. You can do robotically. Uh, you don't have any steps that are hard to, hard that you sort of have to do like sonication. You don't have any of those steps. So, it, so it, it's ideal for automation. And even better is, is our version that we call it cut and tag. So cut and run is for cleavage under targets and release using nuclease and cut and tag is cleavage under targets and tagmentation. And so we just substitute TN5, the cut and paste transposase that'll put in adapters that's tagmentation when it does the cut and paste reaction. And that gives you that, that means that the whole thing can be done very quickly. And so we've automated that. Uh, and that was also done by Derek. And it's, uh, we're actually, it's cheap enough and fast enough that uh, we're starting to do it on patient samples. So I think it's, uh, we can get epigenomics into the clinic pretty soon. We first did it on MLL rearranged leukemias. This is something that's a bioarchive paper uh, that we're currently uh, revising. And, uh, and I'm, I'm quite excited about the possibilities to get cut and tag or auto cut and tag in, uh, as a tool that can be used uh, by anybody for uh, in the clinic.
Uh, when you compare cut and tag versus cut and run, um, are there major differences? Can both be used for histone modifications, transcription factors, anything? Because it's still a native essay, right? Yeah, now that's a really good point because, because although both can be used for histone modifications, we much prefer cut and tag. And we've, in part because we've simplified it in a way both for the robot and, and for, and for uh, benchtop, Actually, uh, we simplified it so much. I do it. I do it at home. I actually been working. Uh, I uh, in my in the corner laundry room, which is a few steps from where I'm sitting right now. So so yeah, it, it it's so easy. Cut and tag is so easy, and you go all the way from nuclei all the way to purified sequence ready libraries in in a day. Uh, and there's nothing. It's it's so easy and reproducible. That you can you can do it in uh, you know in your garage if you like, uh, and so uh, so we're we're mostly keen about about that for histone modifications. However, it's not so good for transcription factors. That has to do with the fact that we need to have a high salt step to prevent the TN5 from binding to accessible DNA and giving you uh, this artifact that, uh, and we can suppress that artifact. By adding, by adding uh, enough sodium chloride, but that at the same time it prevents the binding of TN5, which likes to bind very strongly to DNA. To prevent that binding, it also can cause transcription factors to come off, and so it's not so it's not so efficient there. And we do things like like crosslinking. Nothing seems to really get around that. So for transcription factors, we much prefer. Uh, cut and run, which also gives us fragment size that's distinctive between transcription factors that are small and nucleosomes that are large. So we we get the advantage with cut and run of using the the size of the fragment to tell us what to tell us what we're looking at. Which uh, sizes are you looking at there? Can you make an estimate? Uh, we do a cut uh, a crude cutoff at about 120 base pairs. Anything larger than 120 base pairs, we might consider to be a nucleosome, and anything smaller would be a transcription factor. In fact, when we when with either method, we actually see that transcription factors fall into the smaller size peaks, and and almost none are in the larger size peaks. Okay. So um, I, I also checked out the protocol of both methods, and you use a Correct me if I'm wrong here, but um, you use a primary antibody and then a secondary antibody to um, to amplify the signal, presumably. Um, That's right. But, but That's protein right. A exactly. could also uh, bind to the primary antibody, right? That's right. That's what we're using. So we use an antibody that'll bind to the primary antibody. So, for example, if you're using a rabbit antibody, we'll use a guinea pig anti-rabbit antibody because guinea pig... IgG is nicely recognized by protein A. Okay, but protein A would also be in bind to rabbit, right? So this it'll get both. Okay. Um, another question that that maybe comes up uh, a lot here for cut and running cut and take is the normalization. How would you would you do that? The so when you say normalization, do you mean uh, something like comparing two cells in a series, uh, two different samples in a series? We do that. We uh, that's a little tricky. You have to use a spike in for that. And what what we found was so what we were doing originally for cut and run 
was to add a little bit of heterologous DNA. So if we're doing human, we'd be yeast or fly. Uh, if we're doing fly, we do yeast, things like that. So so we so we do a we do a spike in. It turned out that we didn't even need to do that because later we discovered that there's enough there's enough carryover of E. coli DNA from purification of the of the protein A MNAs or the protein A T and five in both cases. We had enough E. coli DNA there that that served as really an ideal spike in. So that's what we recommend using. It, it sort of comes with the territory. Although although uh, in cases where the, the because commercial so there are commercial products for for all of these and uh, and they overclean the <laughs> there is the 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 enzymes that you get the fusion proteins that you get commercially are very clean much cleaner than uh, so we used to send it out to hundreds of laboratories and this stuff that had a lot a lot of E. coli DNA and it's a, say use it because it's great you can use it as a spike in but now it comes too clean so there have to be other other ways of doing the spike in so that that's that's something that I, I hope the companies are working on. So during uh, one of your talks that I listened to in preparing this this interview um, in the last couple of weeks, you also talked about the development of QTech and PolQTech, uh, which is an application of cut and tag, but also mimics the results of ATAC-seq, probably. Um, how did you come up with those methods, methods and how do those methods compare and are there any advantages of one over the other? Well, I'm glad you asked that because it's what we're it's uh, we're still we're still working on this to uh, to uh, to sort of improve it, but I think it, I think it's pretty much there the protocols we have there. So let, let me uh, sort of back up here and give you the the, the where the idea came from. Uh, first of all, uh, everything that that you're talking about here, I actually developed in my. <laughs> Uh, in the bench top here at home, so it was all it, it was all kind of my my little project here, and and what I'd noticed was that I was telling you about the problem with getting this ataxy type artifact because the protein because while the protein A goes to the antibody, the TN5 part just clumps onto DNA, so we suppress it with sodium chloride. If we do all the washes the same with high salt to get rid of all the excess, but then do the tagmentation at low, low salt, what happens is that the TN5s from nucleosomes all around it will get sucked into the hole and they give you, the, they give you a beautiful accessibility site uh, mapping, just that. So one change in one solution, otherwise the process is the same. So you can have one You can have one tube, you can have all the different antibodies that you want to look at. And then you have one tube where you use a particular antibody. This is for H3K4 dimethylation. And that's the only one that really works well. Try also works. And none of the other antibodies work. With one exception, I'm going to get to. So, so what you see is that you can get this very clean, this very clean accessible site mapping just doing just basically uh, doing this one one step. It's clean and and we compared it uh, extensively to all the best taxi data we could find and and it's as clean or cleaner as the best than the best data. Now it turns out we've been able to improve that even further by instead of using the H3K4 dimethylation, which is laid down by the set one enzyme as RNA polymerase goes through, 
if we use stalled RNA polymerase itself, which is sitting in the, the nucleosome depleted region, we use stalled RNA polymerase itself is what we call POLC attack. So this would be the serine 5-phosphorylated version of RNA POL2. It works even better. And this allows us to map where the, where the, the uh, accessible site is to the, basically to the base pair. We find that by comparing to, to where RNA POL2 is mapped by ProSeq, ProSeq maps where the RNA base is in the active site of RNA polymerase. So from the active site to RNA polymerase to the accessible site is about 130 base pairs in, uh, in human cells. And, uh, and that we see at all sites of accessibility. We haven't been able to distinguish sites from accessibility as those that are mapped by either H3K4 dimethylation or POLC attack. They both map uh, in all the same places, including at enhancers and promoters. And we've shown that separately by looking at, at uh, functional enhancer data, something called StarSeq data. We've looked at that and we picked those up as well. And we see that the same thing goes for, for attack seek sites. So it's, a, it's an easy way if you're gonna already do cut and run or cut and tag, it's an easy way to also get accessible site mapping that is really much, much cleaner and, and you can do it with fewer, <clears throat> less sequencing than, so it's cheaper than the, the methods out there. So um, again, hinting in the direction of multiomics, um, doing multiple um, methods with one sample. We're, we're doing that, uh, we and other, so this, is, this has been sort of a holy grail in the single cell field. So, so cut and tag is really ideal for single cell profiling because, because the TN5 holds on after tagmentation, holds on to the DNA. So you can, you can sort it, you can basically sort into, into nanowells, which we like to do using the Takara system. We've also done it on the 10X platform to do single cells, so that's great. So then the next thing to do is to do two different things. For example, to, to what a lot of people are doing now and what 10X has a kit for is to do single cell attack seek together with RNA-seq. And one of the things that we're working on is looking pretty good is to do two different antibodies with the same readout basically. And uh, this is work. This is work that's currently in progress. I don't really have anything, uh, you know, anything that is is yet uh, yet out there. But but I think it's a good. Way, I think it's a good way to go. Yeah. So um, what I've also found uh, during my research um, is that you are very active in the community, right? You put everything that you do on 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 protocols IO, and you discuss with the people. It's not just your own lab, but everybody who has a question basically can can post there, and you will happily uh, answer all the questions that are there. Um, uh, what is your approach um, regarding the community? Well, we, we, we really enjoy, so we really enjoy getting the feedback about the methods because it helps us improve the methods. It's the best way, the best way to do it. And having, a, having this protocols IO site and Derek Jansen takes care of cut and run, I take care of cut and tag. We answer, we answer all the questions and sometimes, sometimes uh, people will come up with things and we realize, well, that was really clear in the protocol. So it helps us clean up the protocols, but also can tell us, sort of give us some idea of what pe how people are using 
the methods. And this helps us decide uh, where we want to put our efforts, at least in, in method development. And, and so it's been, it's been really great. And I must say, I, I really enjoy, I really enjoy uh, answering difficult questions. I told, you know, I told you I always like puzzled and I still do. And, you know, and, and troubleshooting these methods is sort of a way of, of dealing with puzzles and they come, they come in every day. They're a lot of fun. Yeah. And since you are not going to any conferences right now, I mean, this is basically the only way to communicate to people. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So so, so what are you working on uh, right now and what is to come in the next maybe five years? Well, I, told, I, think, I, I think I told you with respect to, to methods development, uh, we, we want to be able to do multiple, multiple antibodies uh, by, by cut and tag. So that, that's sort of where we're focused on now and also, and also to actually answer some interesting questions that can be answered with single cell biology because you can you can basically follow different lineages and we'd like to be able to do that uh, using using this cut and tag single cell cut and tag approach so 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 that's a, so that's one direction that we that people in the lab are, are following uh, we have some 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 other methods that uh, we're working on following events behind the replication fork something we've always been interested in and we want to Uh, get that into a single cell format so we can follow different lineages and see what's the relationship between DNA replication and, and differentiation. So that's a big question that I think, I think we, we might be able to address. So those, those are, those are the directions that, that we're going right now. And, uh, and yeah, I think we might have the tools for doing that. Uh, we uh, postdocs in the lab are really working hard on these, On, on applying these methods that we've developed, uh, particularly single cell method with cut and tag for, for answering these interesting questions. So to finish off this interview, I have two more general questions. Um, the first one, um, did you at one point of your career face a situation that you have reached a dead end uh, or that you did not know how to proceed to unravel the questions you wanted to answer? Yeah, well, the sort of the general answer to that question is, yeah, all the, all the time. But you know, the, the trick is, the trick is to know when when to actually, uh, you know, when to quit. Okay, I mean, you can keep beating away at something, but you know, then you just uh, you just get sucked into it. So the the uh, so the idea is to quit early. You know? <laughs> Don't get don't get sucked into it, but but actually uh, you can go too far with that, and sometimes and and so as a as a caution, I would say. So I I think I'll just relate uh, an early experience here. So I was a postdoc with Charles Laird in the zoology department, University of Washington, and one day Char Charles on, was on sabbatical in England, so I answered his phone, and it was Ben Hall from across the street in the genetics department, and he was asking if he could get some Drosophila DNA. Uh, sounds easy. However, there was a catch, and that is it needed to be yeast-free Drosophila DNA. That's because Ben wanted to use it for cloning heterologous uh, gene by complementation in yeast. This would work well for yeast genes, but wouldn't it be a wonderful tool if you could use complementation to uh, yeast mutations to isolate uh, the ortholog in from uh, from a multicellular critter? Okay. Well, that wasn't easy because flies grow on yeast. You know, they eat yeast. So, you know, growing yeast-free 
cell cultures. It wasn't something that was in my toolbox at the time. But anyway, I, I, so I put a lot of work into it and then came over to Ben's lab after having invested quite a bit into it uh, with some yeast-free fly DNA. Uh, but there was nobody to do the project. So I took it on myself. I got good at cloning yeast genes by complementation. But every yeast mutation I tried, I could not get any complementation from my Drosophila library. So I tried, uh, I tried lots of different mutations. I was cloning all these yeast genes, and uh, they were just controls. Uh, but I wasn't getting anything. And I was just about ready to give up. And the memorable moment is that when I, I was looking at my plates, which were just about becoming moldy, this, you know, to see if there's anything on the fly library plates. Uh, I was talking to Ben, Ben came by, I was talking to Ben and saying, you yeah, know, Ben, I think I'm gonna quit because you know, I've carried this as far as, and I've had a lot of fun and I've learned a lot of stuff. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm gonna quit. And I, then I was looking at the plate and there was one little tiny little colony on that plate. And, and I thought, well, okay, but let me just, follow this up. Well, that was it. It turned out that it was the first heterologous gene to be cloned by genetic complementation, got me a big paper in nature, got me my job at the Hutch. And here I am. <laughs> well, that's that's a great story. <laughs> the, lesson, the lesson is that, you know, give up early, but 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 yeah, think about it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe just do another four weeks. <laughs> so in the last 45 minutes, uh, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Can you maybe give a short summary about your most important findings, maybe what you consider your most important findings, or what we might have missed in this interview, but you still want to share? Well, we've had a, we've had a, lot, of, a lot of important findings, uh, uh, but I kind of consider those to be findings by other people in the lab. So I guess the most important finding of uh, my own uh, in the, since I started a lab was when I, I, this, um, what I was just telling you about actually this fly gene that had cloned by complementation was just part of an open breeding frame with an, uh, with an AUG that happened to be in frame, but it could be used as the start site for the protein. And then you get a little fragment of protein and there was no introns in there in that part of it, but turned out it's a much larger gene. It was a purine pathway gene, had three enzymatic activities. So it's a big gene. And so when I started my lab, I wanted to get the upstream region to find the promoter and look at the regulatory region. This is the early 1980s. And, uh, and this, uh, uh, people were just doing random fragmentation and that wasn't good. But in order to get something like 5KB, which doesn't sound like a lot, but at the time it was huge because you, <laughs> you can finish a sequencing project. I, I came up with an idea for making, uh, making a nested set of deletions. We uh, turned into kits named the race base or whatever. So, so, the, so that, was, that was like a, a method that I developed back then, but it got me the sequence of the whole upstream region of the, of the SCART purine pathway gene, which I didn't have uh, before, but it, it turned out that that it was the first, it got me the promoter of the gene. And I could tell that because I got the full open reading frame separated by a 4KB intron, big intron there. And so when I was published, so I'm publishing the paper for the method, the, you know, what became a race base or whatever, publishing paper for the method back in the eighties, you would put in, you would actually put in the typed out version of your sequence there. So it's like a full page of about 5KB or something like that of, of, of text A's and G's and C's and T's. Okay, 
And I was looking at it and I knew that I knew that I had because I could put together the open reading frame with the with the splices. I knew where the intron was and I could see that, well, you know, it's kind of AT rich because that's what Drosophila introns are. They're AT rich. So you see A's and T's. And that was most of not all of it. I sort of looked at it when I was doing the proofs and I saw, well, there's this region that is not angular, like A's and T's are angular and C's and G's are curly. There's sort of this curly region in there. I thought, well, I wonder if that's something. So I translated all six frames. I searched through the protein database and I had a hit. On the opposite strand, it turned out to be uh, predicted to be a Drosophila cuticle protein gene on the opposite strand, had its own intron, and it was inside the intron of a purine pathway gene. It was like totally unrelated. He had a gene inside of another gene. It was actually the, the first, uh, I teamed up with a group at Berkeley that was looking at Drosophila cuticle protein genes, and they confirmed there really is a gene. It's a real, real thing. And, uh, and well, that turned out to be uh, the, the gene in a gene uh, arrangement was, uh, you know, the first, the the first violation of the linear order of chromosome, uh, the linear order of genes along the chromosome that Sturdivant described in 1913. So this is something that I just by looking at the sequence, and then I was hooked on on, on sequence analysis after that. So already back then, that data visualization was a big thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it worked. <laughs> So I think that's a good point to, to end this interview. Thank you, Steve, for your time and being on the show. Okay, thank you, Stefan. It was really fun talking to you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout-out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned.